I am Shante Javon Taylor, and you are having Coffee with the Neuroscientist. Today, as our guest on the Coffee with the Neuroscientist podcast is Roger Dooley. Roger Dooley is an author, international keynote speaker, and consultant. He is a recognized expert in the use of brain and behavior research to improve marketing, sales, and customer experience. Roger Dooley is the author of the best-selling book, Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing, which has been translated into six languages. He writes the popular blog, Neuromarketing, as well as the Brainy Marketing column at Forbes.com. He is the founder of Dooley Direct, a marketing consultancy, and co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website. Roger Dooley focuses on influence and persuasion with an emphasis on highly practical application of brain and behavior research. He brings well-grounded understanding of how business works to every project. He has worked with companies ranging from Fortune 500 firms to entrepreneurial startups to enhance their digital and conventional marketing. Roger Dooley has spent years in direct marketing as the co-founder of a successful catalog firm and was director of corporate planning for a Fortune 1000 company. He has an engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon University and an MBA from the University of Tennessee. Welcome Roger Dooley to the Coffee with the Neuroscientist podcast today. Well, happy to be here, Shante. Yes, yes, this is going to be an exciting, mentally stimulating conversation, no doubt. Well, I imagine so. <laughs> so the first question I have to ask you is, are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Uh, yes, I'm a coffee drinker, and uh, here I even have my prop to uh, show it here. Uh, sadly, I have no sponsorship money from Starbucks, but <laughs> we can work on that. Yes, let's work on that shit. Brainfluence, maybe that'll help us. <laughs> neuromarketing. Speaking of neuromarketing, Roger, can you share with the audience what neuromarketing is for those who may not be familiar with it? Sure. And before we get to that, I guess I had that I just saw a, a little, I know you're a science-based uh, kind of lady, Shantae. So uh, supposedly up to four cups of coffee a day are safe. That was, I think, four oh. eight-ounce cups, which are rather healthy-sized cups. So yeah. it's good for you. The caffeine stimulates your brain. It improves uh, your cognition a little bit, at least uh, uh, at first. Absolutely. So uh, definitely a uh, uh, that little jolt of caffeine helps, and apparently it's not too dangerous for you either. But anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you for that tidbit. <laughs> uh, neuromarketing mm -hmm. uh, is uh, it, well, people use different definitions. Uh, mine is kind of broad. I like to say that neuromarketing uh, is any use of our understanding of how the brain works to market better. Uh, so that could include the sort of hard tools of neuroscience, tools like fMRI, EEG, and so on. Some not quite so neuro tools like eye tracking or uh, biometric measurements, and also applying behavior science to marketing problems. And over the years, I've become increasingly focused on the latter because often if you can take some 
of principles that have been demonstrated to be true uh, by behavior scientists, social scientists, psychologists, and so on, uh, those can be readily applied by just about any size business where basically, at least in the past, neuromarketing has been uh, sort of the hardcore neuromarketing with uh, neuroscience tools has been available only to big brands, you know, the Cokes and BMWs of the world where smaller entrepreneurial companies simply can't afford to do those kinds of neuromarketing studies. Now, the good news is those tools are getting cheaper and cheaper so that uh, uh, pretty soon, uh, even relatively small companies will be able to afford neuromarketing studies, particularly using some uh, tools that can be uh, used, say, over the web or over mobile devices, like implicit testing or facial coding, where uh, in the past, to do facial coding, which is based on the science of Paul Ekman, uh, where he found that uh, people exhibited their true emotions. And that's, of course, what neuromarketing is intended to do, is to get to what people are really feeling and not what they're saying they're feeling, because often people either can't or won't say that. Uh, uh, but uh, people are really unable to disguise their true feelings, Ekman found, at least um, for a few milliseconds, uh, uh, because he could analyze their even very fleeting facial expressions. And this used to take slow motion video and expert analysts, but now it can be done using uh, tools like simple web cameras and even mobile device cams. Wow, we've come a long way. <laughs> well, there's a long, long way to go, too, I think. Absolutely. Particularly as you combine these tools with uh, some of the other tools uh, that might fall into the general category of big data, uh, personalization, and so on. Um, so, uh, really may give marketers some uh, interesting opportunities, although at it, it, uh, some level that can be kind of scary when you realize uh, not only do um, companies like Google or others uh, know what you're looking at on the web and so on, but they might actually be able to gauge your emotional state at different times. Facebook has been uh, known to do that via not so much neuromarketing tools, but by analyzing the content of what you're saying and what you're doing. Mm, yes, there, there's definitely value in analyzing emotions and getting to the, the heart or that unconscious thoughts or, or feelings. So how do you feel about focus groups and people who give out surveys? I know a lot of entrepreneurs are tempted to give out surveys, but I've always kind of been resistant because like you said, they can say one thing, but their behaviors and emotions can say something else. Right. Well, I think that we can't throw those tools out completely. Uh, certain kinds of questions, people actually can answer fairly accurately and will answer fairly accurately. For instance, if you ask people what they had for breakfast this morning, chances are uh, you'll get mostly accurate answers. Uh, but when you ask them, uh, why do you like the brand of perfume that you just bought? Uh, or, uh, you know, why do you drink this kind of beer? Uh, then those answers become far less reliable. And uh, also predicting future actions is very difficult. So one of the things that uh, marketers like to do is describe a product to people, perhaps give them a price, and then say, well, would you buy this product? Uh, and that's where you can really run into some inaccuracies. And people, there's a variety of reasons why people can't respond. Sometimes they just don't know. Uh, they can't answer why they like that perfume. It was probably related to... Uh, some kind of imagery that they associate with uh, that fragrance uh, that represents perhaps uh, an emotion that they would like to feel. Uh, the, and of course, if you ask people why they like a particular brand of beer, they say, well, I like the way it tastes. But again, it probably has a lot more to do with the image 
uh, that that brand represents than its actual taste. Uh, the, uh, so people can say, sometimes they won't say, they're reluctant to say if you ask people very personal questions, uh, yeah. uh, that may uh, be a problem. Uh, the, uh, and then it's simply very difficult for people to predict uh, future behavior. And often, too, they want to please the questioner. So if you show them something and say, well, do you like this? They're probably far more likely to say, oh, yes, it's nice. Uh, right. When even maybe either consciously or subconsciously, they're thinking, no, this isn't very good. Right. Nevertheless, you know, you, there, there is predictive value in uh, surveys and questionnaires. Mm-hmm. And the uh, sort of the gold standard for neuromarketing tools, which is actually a pretty difficult threshold, is to predict uh, behavior better than simply asking people questions. Now, uh, Temple University did a big study a couple of years ago that did show that fMRI was able to predict uh, uh, that behavior uh, better than what people actually said in a survey, but it wasn't by a giant margin. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, I think that uh, uh, as, a, as a quick and dirty tool, surveys are really good, particularly if you're trying to get rather simple factual information. Uh, if you're trying to dig into emotions or future behavior, uh, then those tools become less reliable. And, and focus, you know, focus groups uh, have advantages and disadvantages. They can sometimes get a little bit more into that emotional area as people interact with each other and perhaps somebody says something that causes a response by somebody else, but they have their own flaws too, or they can be uh, dominated by a particular individual and uh, perhaps people are even more reluctant to express what they really think than they would on an anonymous survey. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with surveys, instead of asking the yes or no or choose A, B, or C, asking those open-ended questions would probably get more to the, the root of why they like something or why they're feeling something because now they're using their own words uh, to describe um, something that's at a deeper level. Right. Well, that can be very useful. And in fact, uh, uh, there's uh, another uh, fellow Austinite of ours, Ryan Levesque, who wrote a book called Ask uh, yeah. that's all about um, surveys and survey funnels and using surveys as a sort of a proactive marketing tool, not just as an information gathering tool, but uh, one of the things that he does in uh, his uh, deep dive surveys is asks, uh, he asks open-ended questions where people can respond uh, in as much length as they want. And not only does he get some interesting answers and phrases that people use and perhaps even some emotional context, but uh, uh, his work has even shown that um, the length of the answer itself. So even uh, ir- irrespective of what people said, uh, if somebody responds uh, with a 250-word uh, essay as opposed to a five-word uh, sentence, mm-hmm. uh, that indicates that this is probably some kind of a hot button for them, uh, and that it's probably a lot more important uh, than otherwise. So uh, there, there are a lot of clues that you can get uh, from surveys. Absolutely. That, that sounds like a, a more effective way to get, uh, you know, that substantive answer uh, from prospective clients or uh, client feedback, because it, it really taps into those deeper levels of um, emotions and thought processes. Sure. But of course, it's harder to interpret, too, where if you've got a bunch of multiple choice and uh, true false <laughs> answers, uh, 
you can just uh, spit out the data uh, where if you've got all these uh, weird open-ended answers to open-ended questions, uh, that takes human analysis. So at least uh, that's probably uh, these days, maybe Watson could do a job uh, and we'll, we'll be at the point soon where automated analysis is pretty effective. But uh, at the moment, uh, it's a lot more work. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about qualitative versus quantitative. Um, in brain fluence, it, it sounds like um, uh, we are more susceptible to what's going on with our emotions and uh, subconscious and right brain versus data and statistics um, when we speak about buying or, you know, or purchasing products or services. Well, absolutely. And of course, what you find is that most marketers who have developed these wonderful products I'll want to talk about their products. They want to talk about the features, uh, the specifications, how they're better than the competition. Uh, certainly offering some user benefits in there too, but uh, it's all a very sort of uh, rational, logical persuasion method. And uh, perhaps the most important science uh, there is uh, the work of uh, Kahneman and Tversky, which uh, show that we have uh, system one and system two thinking. Uh, and system one is uh, very fast, intuitive, emotional, it's rule-based. I did this last time, so I'm going to do it again. I don't have to think about it. Uh, right. uh, and it's very energy efficient, mm -hmm. where uh, system two is that logical, rational, grind-through-it uh, thinking. Uh, and at times, we do have to do that. If you're buying a very technical product, you do have to look at the specifications and make sure it's actually going to work for your application. But um, uh, Kahneman's key insight is that our brains don't like to be uh, in system two thinking, and uh, he termed system one default mode thinking, uh, which basically means that's where we want to be all the time. We want to be in this sort of mostly non-conscious decision-making uh, mode or thinking mode, uh, right. and we only get uh, into that other mode if we're pushed into it. So uh, it's, and it's not comfortable for us. We try and get out of that mode as quickly as possible. Right. So when you're throwing a lot of uh, facts and figures at your customers, you're pushing them into a kind of thinking that isn't very comfortable for them. And one way companies fight this, if you look at, uh, well, certainly Amazon is by far the most successful online retailer. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll find that they hide uh, a good part of the description of products that have long descriptions. Uh, you'll see uh, a few lines of description, and then it'll it'll fade out, and you'll see uh, you know click for more or see more. Right. And uh, what they're doing there uh, is, I assume I haven't uh, actually uh, asked Jeff Bezos about this, but what I assume they're doing is uh, using uh, the fruits of research that showed that when you give people too much information. Uh, it takes them out of that easy system one thinking and pushes them into system two. In this way, the information is there for that person who really needs it uh, because their application is critical or they know that most products won't work for their application. They can get at it, but uh, they have to be proactive about it where the casual buyer can simply glance at, look at, look at the uh, picture, uh, read a few lines of the most important part of the description, look at the price, and click that buy now button. Now, does that um, also go for higher-end premium products or those lower-level price products? I would say it applies across the board. Uh, in, uh, you know, somebody who goes out and uh, buys an expensive sports car, uh, you know, that's, that's a high-end product. There's certainly a lot of technical features, and uh, they may be interested to know how fast it can go from 0 to 60 miles an hour. Uh, but that is, I would say, in most cases, 
a largely emotional decision that they've made, uh, they may need some of those facts and figures to uh, justify their decisions. So that when somebody says, why'd you buy that uh, convertible? It doesn't seem like your kind of car. Uh, you, know, you can explain, oh, well, it gets great gas mileage. Uh, uh, and I checked the resale values and this holds resale value far better than the SUVs or the sedans uh, and, and so on and so on. So, you know, sometimes they need that uh, uh, logical information but uh, it's often one of those cases where people buy an emotion and then justify with reason. So it's like cognitive dissonance a little bit. They buy something and start to look for evidence to support why they buy it. Right. Yeah. Sort of confirmation bias, perhaps, too, where uh, uh, you know they look for information that will justify their purchase and they'll reject information uh, that doesn't justify it. So uh, this is a good tip for entrepreneurs then maybe provide a few facts and figures, maybe 5%, but the rest is more of here's the uh, benefits or how it will make you feel or t tell a storyline maybe. Right, uh, stories are great. And there, there are all kinds of non-conscious uh, persuasion tools. Uh, storytelling is certainly one. It, uh, you see that a lot on say uh, diet sites or fitness sites where people have had results. Instead of just uh, showing uh, pictures of five people and how much weight they lost, you'll see these kind of detailed stories uh, that talk about the person's struggles, uh, uh, maybe even going back to their childhood and then their relationship issues and so on. Yeah. Uh, and that makes uh, the uh, testimonial far more memorable uh, than a very simple, you know, one sentence with a, a couple of numbers type testimonial. Uh, the, uh, our brains are wired to like stories. Uh, there's been some great fMRI work. Uh, that shows that when you start telling somebody a story, first of all, you, every uh, public speaker knows you get people's attention that way very quickly. Uh, but uh, there's fMRI work showing that the motor areas of people's brains light up when they hear certain kinds of action words as if their brain was, or as if they were performing that same action that they're hearing told in the story, even though they're uh, totally immobilized in this fMRI tube. And stories are even a form of mind control. Uh, when they put two separate subjects in fMRI machines, and for, for any of uh, uh, your viewers who aren't familiar with fMRI, it gives you sort of a uh, not quite a real-time uh, 3D uh, uh, image of which, which parts of the subject's brain are active at a given moment uh, so that you can see how they're reacting to various information. If they're listening to something, viewing something, uh, you can see uh, how this changes over time, like uh, all, almost in, in real time. And in any case, they uh, had two fMRI machines, each with a separate subject in them. And the first subject started telling a story and the second subject listened. Uh, and what they found really amazed them because uh, they were watching uh, the brain activity of both subjects. And within a few seconds of the story beginning, the second person's brain actually synchronized with the first person's brain. So, uh, you know, uh, science fiction mind control isn't quite here yet. But uh, if you do want to control somebody's mind, uh, tell them a story. That's about as close as you're going to get. That is fascinating. I was just um, on a panel with Donnie Osman at South by Southwest this year, and he discussed um, how he started to use stories before he sung his songs, right? He'd been in the, the business for three or four decades, but he had to learn to, uh, you know, keep people engaged 
you know, with those story, uh, with those songs. So one way he did that was through storytelling, you know. And so I gave the some of the neuroscience behind that why people are so engaged. So that right. Is well, you know, a, a good example of that where uh, you're trying to get people engaged with entertainment content uh, is sports. Uh, if you watch the Olympic broadcasts. Uh, before the big race, they always have these profiles of the athletes showing their struggles that they've gone through, their home life, and so on. Because in a lot of cases, uh, you don't really even know the athletes running, uh, particularly if your country isn't competitive in that event. It's sort of a, well, who cares, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Laffy or Estonia or Indonesia. Uh, but uh, suddenly when you find out uh, that one athlete has uh, under, overcome, really, uh, overcame some great uh, uh, obstacles in their life and so on, suddenly it becomes a lot more meaningful and you start rooting for one athlete or another athlete or uh, maybe uh, uh, you realize that two of the athletes have been uh, competing against each other their entire lives and that makes their contest more meaningful. And, and what, those, what the networks are doing, and I know that a lot of sports viewers are turned off by those things. It's like, just get to the action. You know, I don't, want, don't really need to know uh, what this person's uh, apartment in a Moscow suburb looks like. Uh, the, uh, what they're doing is uh, they're adding meaning to the event by uh, introducing it with a story. Absolutely. I think that is so powerful to do is to, to connect the humanness of, of people. Stories connect us and bond us. You know, we get that oxytocin, that bonding chemical release, you know, it makes us feel more humane. I think stories can do a lot for our brains, our brain connections, our mirror neurons, all of that, that good stuff that keeps us, um, uh, elevates humanity, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's a good time to understand and learn about the brain and how it can serve us and in our businesses. And I'm glad this knowledge is getting to, you know, the, the common entrepreneur that doesn't have the multi-million dollar budget <laughs> to, um, you know, implement these tactics. So this is good stuff. Well, well it's, it's really important because, you know, I think uh, too, some of the uh, uh, big brands have known for years about at least some of the emotional triggers uh, in marketing, but uh, for, uh, smaller businesses often, uh, you know, they haven't had that either formal training or had the experience, uh, uh, and their first instinct is to uh, talk about their product. Uh, and, yes. you know, the product is important. I mean, obviously, the product has to work. It has to be of high quality. The service has to be there and everything else. But uh, there's a lot that goes into uh, marketing, and, and it's, a lot of it is not intuitive. I think a, a great example uh, of that is uh, how people are influenced uh, by, well, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Bob Cialdini and his now seven principles of influence, uh, things like reciprocity. If I do something for you, you're more likely to do something for me in return. Uh, and one of those is social proof, which means when you see other people doing something, you're more likely to do it yourself. And, and probably the most common example I could think of is if you see two restaurants and one's got a line going out the door and the other is, has empty tables, uh, you're going to think, wow, the one with the line out the door must be much better than the other one. Uh, the, uh, but uh, so, I mean, people would acknowledge that influence. Thank you for that. Can you share with us what your whole book is about? Are you distinguishing between uh, psychology and neuroscience marketing? Uh, no, you know, really, uh, my book includes the whole spectrum. Some of the findings may come from uh, neuroscience studies. A lot of them come from social science experiments, because again, I was trying to find 
um, tools that people could use, uh, even if they had a limited budget. Uh, and so in, uh, what I did was I created uh, 100 short chapters, each with a particular uh, focus on some kind of uh, research. It might be one experiment or a series of experiments or related uh, experiments. Uh, and then an explanation of how that could be used uh, in the real world in improving marketing. So uh, it, it really uh, covers the, uh, the whole range of uh, psychology and social science and neuroscience. Yes, yeah. I, I always, uh, when I'm progressing through your book, Brainfluence, I get a burst of dopamine every time I figure out a new strategy and why. And it's really short. Each chapter is short. So you're like, I finished that one. So you get a burst of dopamine. So. Right. Well, that, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's an, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think uh, that, uh, that's one reason I chose to go with unusually short chapters. Uh, first of all, because not everybody is going to be uh, interested in every chapter. So it allows people to navigate around to find those things that are going to be most relevant. So I've got a section on uh, copywriting and headlines and that sort of thing. I've got a section on pricing, uh, you know, a, sec a section on web design. Uh, and so if people are wrestling with a particular problem, they can navigate to that area really easily. And plus, I like the idea of bite-sized chapters for exactly the reason you described. Uh, you know, sometimes navigating through a 30-page uh, chapter in a book uh, can be a little bit tedious or trying to even remember if you saw something interesting, trying to find that again. Uh, and I really like the idea of giving people something that if they just pick up the book for a minute or two, uh, they can consume a chapter or if, if they have a few more minutes, they can consume two or three chapters, uh, but achieve that sense of completion that, okay, I learned something useful. Yes, I appreciate that, especially as an entrepreneur and you only have so much time to spend on each thing. <laughs> So let me ask you, I like to ask all my guests, what legacy do you want to leave in the world? Well, I guess I would like to uh, find that uh, I helped people in uh, some way. And uh, I've uh, certainly with my book, I know I get feedback from uh, marketers and entrepreneurs saying, hey, uh, I tried this idea and it worked and helped my business. So I mean, I, to me, that that's uh, knowing that you cause change. Uh, in an earlier business venture, I built a business called College Confidential. I co-founded it, and it's the um, busiest website for college-bound students and parents. Uh, and it's a place where uh, students and parents go for information about the college process, which is very confusing in the U.S., Not much more confusing than in almost any other country in the world, I think. Uh, because there are so many choices, there are literally three to four thousand uh, institutions of higher education. Uh, many of them are very difficult to get into. Uh, it's not always clear why you should choose one over the other. And uh, and for the most uh, selective schools, trying to predict whether you can even get in or not is impossible. Uh, where in many countries you have a sort of a test program or something that you know, you get your score and say, okay, well, I can get into these schools and I can't get into those schools. Uh, in the U.S., it's, it's much more ill-defined. So created this site uh, uh, in the, to the point where I, I sold the business some, uh, some years ago, but uh, it remains the busiest website where uh, millions of people come to get help. And I, the, uh, to me, the feedback I get from there where um, a student will say, hey, I, I got into my dream school or I found my dream school uh, because of the help I got on this website. To me, to me, that is one of the best legacies that you can leave behind where you know that you've influenced people's lives. And now I'm working on a new book a project that hopefully will have, again, uh, an influence on the way people think and uh, perhaps the way they conduct business. 
That's wonderful because I, I know that some people may question the ethics of you know uh, using neuroscience in our marketing. Um, but if we use it ethically, I think most people are good. You know, I think most people, you know, even though they're in business, they're still um, in a good business. You know, they still want people to thrive. So what do you say about uh, people who question using brain science in their marketing? Well, well I, you know, it's, it's a question that I get asked all the time. And it's a legitimate question because uh, many of these techniques could be viewed as manipulative. Uh, and I, I like to go back to uh, the words of Zig Ziglar, who is perhaps the greatest salesperson uh, of all time. Uh, he wrote uh, a lot of books on sales techniques, uh, including one that was, I don't know, like 20 different ways to close a sale. Uh, and if you look at that just on its face and say, well, this is very manipulative where, you know, the presumptive close or, you know, uh, shall I deliver this on Tuesday or Wednesday and, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, clearly this seems like a, a manipulative high pressure tactic. But uh, Zig Ziglar said that your most important tool of persuasion is your own integrity. And by that, uh, what he meant, I think, is that uh, if you are helping your customer get to a better place by buying your product. Uh, if they will be happy with their purchase, if they will feel better after uh, the transaction than before, uh, then you're really doing good work. And if you need to nudge them a little bit to uh, help close the transaction, then that's perfectly legitimate. You know, on the other hand, uh, if you were looking for a one-off, uh, quick kill kind of sale where you're going to get the sale and never deal with that person again, uh, that's unethical no matter how you accomplish it. I mean, you could uh, not just use some kind of manipulative sales technique uh, or some emotional marketing technique. Uh, you could simply lie about your product. Uh, you could omit uh, important details. Uh, you know, and regardless of what you're doing, uh, if you're getting uh, the customer into a situation that is not good for them, if they're going to regret their purchase, uh, then uh, it's just wrong. And uh, we have some mechanisms, uh, I guess, uh, as uh, a, a nation and as people uh, to guard against that. Uh, but I think probably the most important one is that uh, most companies thrive from repeat customers. And if you are manipulating people into buying stuff that is doesn't work out for them, uh, you may have very short-term success, but your long-term success just won't be there. Absolutely. I mean, because we're, we're in the business of branding ourselves, right, for the long term. So every customer matters. You know, every customer has a story and every per, uh, customer has a potential testimony to how the, the product or service made them feel. You know, so that's really important. So well, yeah, these days uh, it's more incumbent on marketers than ever to behave in an honest and ethical way because there were, you know, before the internet, uh, you could get away with some things as a marketer uh, where uh, you could have unhappy customers and they wouldn't really have a, an effective venue to uh, share their disappointment with your brand or your product. Uh, these days, uh, as we all know uh, from uh, well, most recently the uh, United fiasco, uh, that anything you do wrong uh, will get shared. And if it's really bad, uh, it'll go viral and millions of people will see it uh, and it's going to tarnish your brand. Uh, and even if um, you are uh, doing things that are so egregious that they go viral, you still have the issue of uh, your product is probably going to be reviewed in many places. You'll have comments that people can uh, Google and, and so on. So uh, you really 
it's more important than ever, uh, I think, to market your products in a very uh, transparent and ethical fashion. So leadership matters, culture matters, brand matters, and our customers matter. Well, thank you so much, Roger Dooley, for uh, having this powerful conversation. You gave me an idea, actually, to add to my course a section on uh, neuroethics. You know, how to use this information ethically as you go about being a neuro leader, a neuro coach, and neuro entrepreneur. So, thanks for that. See? Well, Shantae, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So, if people wanted to learn more about you or inquire about your services or products, where, where can they find that? Uh, probably the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com, where I've got link, links to uh, my neuromarketing blog, my Forbes blog, my entrepreneur blog. Uh, and uh, my book, Brainfluence, among uh, also uh, uh, contact info for anybody who wants to uh, get a hold of me. Uh, as far as social media goes, probably I'm most interactive uh, on Twitter, although uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Okay, sounds good. I will put those links below this video um, and this audio when I post it. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed this stimulating conversation. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Shante. <laughs> thank you. Did you like this episode? Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and share with a friend. And if you consider yourself a modern thinker and if you want free mindset success tools and more tips and strategies on how to use neuroscience in your everyday life and how to stay motivated and inspired to live your best self, come visit me at ChanteTaylor.com, enter your name and email address and sign up for my newsletter. Remember, when you better your mind, you better your brain, you better your impact. <laughs>